Hey, New Life Gillette Church, we are thrilled you decided to listen to our teaching on your favorite podcast app. If you made a decision to follow Christ today, would you let us know by visiting yes.newlifegillette.com. Here is this week's teaching. Good morning. Uh, Let me say welcome to the guys over at the prison, to our friends at the jail, those of you watching online. It's good to have you today. Uh, Did you know that in the 1980s, or as Brad Christensen says, the 1980s, they did a survey and they found out the men who have beards are less trustworthy. So ladies, look around. You're surrounded. There's a lot of beards in the room today. Uh, Actually, the perception is that men with beards are less trustworthy in the 1980s. And so as a result, a bunch of businesses start passing rules that say, if you want to work here, you can't have a beard. And and, uh, so fewer and fewer businesses throughout the 80s and 90s allow guys to have beards if they want to work there. Uh, You want to sell used cars? Well, you better shave off that beard because nobody's going to trust you if you have a beard, um, and so that became a strategy that they used. Well, they redid the study later, about uh, 40 years later, they did the same study and found out that that perception had completely disappeared. No longer do people associate beards with uh, untrustable people, uh, untrustworthy people, and so um, businesses started to relax those rules. Two years ago, famously, UPS stopped requiring their employees to shave off their beards. And I say this to say this. Rules change, don't they? I mean, you look at the rules you had when you were a kid compared to the rules you have in your life today, and you realize, okay, yeah, rules change. And for the most part, Scripture tells us that we should submit to our governing authorities. In other words, if somebody gives you a new rule, you should obey the rule. If, it, if it's feasible and with if, if it's um, not like anti-biblical, then you should follow those rules. So we do. In fact, most of us take a lot of pride in how well we are at following the rules. We are law-abiding citizens. That's who we are, right? And we take so much pride in it that we start separating ourselves from the other people, the not law-abiding citizens, the, the rebels, the bad people out there. And so we start separating ourselves, the good crowd and the bad crowd. It's high school all over again, nerds and jocks, but with a little bigger consequences. We take it further, right? And we separate ourselves. We we do what's right, and they don't do what's right. And then we start, like, adding on to what we think is right. We, We start adding to the list of what is right and what is wrong. It's not just what's against the law and what's not. It's like, we don't eat sugar, and they do. We work out, and they don't. We have iPhones. They have Androids, or whatever it is. I don't text Androids. We start deciding, okay, here's what we think is best, and they don't agree with us, so we divide over those disagreements in our lives. It's just kind of a general habit. We decorate for Christmas in December. Those people decorate in November. Anybody already decorated for Christmas? Okay, we got some out there. Yep. yep. We like the Chiefs, or, we, or worse, we like the Steelers. Those evil Chiefs lovers. Excuse me for liking to cheer for a good team every once in a while. 
we drink, we don't drink. When Jesus was on earth, the religious leaders of the time had done something similar. They invented a bunch of new laws they called the oral laws or the oral traditions, and they insisted that everybody follow these laws that they had adopted. Now, these laws weren't in Scripture. They were just added to Scripture in order to help them more closely align to the laws, right? It's very difficult to do all the laws, so they actually drew the boundary back further, and they said, if we just make all these things off-limit, then it'll just keep us more closely aligned to Scripture. So they, they were wisdom things that they adopted into their lives, but then they didn't just say, we're going to do this. The religious leader said, you all have to do it too. And they started telling everybody, if you want to be good, then you've got to obey, yes, obviously all the biblical laws, but then you also have the uh, Hebrew laws, then you also have to add on all these other oral laws because then that'll help you do a better job of following the other laws. And it just, it's like, okay, following all these laws is just getting super confusing. And so a lot of people just rebelled. Like, okay, not gonna do it. Just rebelling against all of the laws. Have you ever played Uno? We got any Uno fans in the room? I've got kids. We play Uno. And I have a question for you. Can you stack draw fours? Okay. So we got a lot of yes opinions. Here's the problem. I looked it up. No, you cannot stack draw fours. That's against the rules. You're all a bunch of cheaters. That's what I say. When I was growing up, uh, my family would always change the rules to games. Like, we'll play them our ways. We'll play our own way. We'd call them Wilson rules. Maybe you have house rules for games that you play, fill in the blank, whatever your name is. Then other people would come over to our house and we'd play the game and we'd always win. It was awesome. We beat everybody. We played a game uh, called Rook and we always won Rook. You don't, you don't agree with our rules? Disagree? Get out. My house, my rules. The problem is we weren't actually playing the real game, right? We were playing some um, made-up game. The creator is the one who gets to pick the rules, not everybody who's playing it, right? In other words, my truth about the rules isn't the truth. You can make up your own version of Rook, but then you have to quit telling people that you're playing Rook. My family always played the Rook is the low trump card. Anybody here played Rook? Not very many. Let me just give you a little background. Rook is the Christian way of playing cards. Because when I was a kid, if you wanted to be in church, you couldn't play cards because they're associated with gambling. And so we came up with Christian cards, exact same thing with different faces, and we would play Rook. And there was a trump, and there was a Rook card, like a joker, and, but you couldn't play with a joker. So you played with a Rook, and the rook was the low trump in our house. Well, that's not the real rule, so people would come over and get upset, and we'd always win. It was awesome. Well, I think we do this with the Bible, right? It's 2022. That rule, we're, we're beyond that, Mike. That doesn't apply to us anymore. That verse doesn't apply anymore. We're, we're more smart than they were. We're more wise than they were back then. That doesn't apply, right? But those of us who believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, we believe that to honor God, we honor his word completely, all of it. The hard thing is that when you're reading God's word, there's not entirely, there's not total agreement on how to interpret it. 
I mean, it's not written in English. So we got to find this ancient language and then translate it into English and figure out what was God. So it's complicated. It gets even more complicated when you read the whole thing. And when you start, you feel like you're just reading a whole bunch of stories and lists of rules. And then you get halfway through the thing and you're like, wait a minute. It seems like some guy showed up and changed all the rules. And this guy shows up and he says, all that stuff in the beginning doesn't apply to you anymore. Like, oh, this is just got super confusing. Actually, if you focus in on Jesus himself, it's not that confusing. If you focus in on what Jesus said when he was here, it's pretty simple. It's when you try to add in all the other stuff that he says doesn't apply to you. You try to add it all into Jesus' teaching. Now it gets confusing. There was a guy named Paul, used to be named Saul. But Paul comes in and he's like pointing the whole world at Jesus's message. And he writes letters to the, these churches that are popping up all over the place, pointing them toward the teaching of Jesus. And Paul wrote one of those letters to the church of Galatia. The book is called Galatians. And the, the main theme of the book is justification by faith alone. The problem, or faith by faith in Christ alone. The problem is that Christ didn't show up until the New Testament. So, yes, it's going to seem like the message in the beginning is different than the message in the end because a lot has changed. Jesus came. He changed the whole scenario. In Galatians, Paul is furious with Peter and some of the other church leaders who are allowing people to believe that they have to obey the Jewish law in order to be a Christian. Like somehow they're, they're teaching these Gentiles, non-Jews, that they have to obey Jewish law in order to be a Christian, which is like one of the main things Jesus came to abolish. He says, before the way of faith, in other words, before Christ, before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. So there was a first stage, the law, and then a second stage, a, a, a next phase. It's not popular to say in Christian circles, but the new covenant and the old covenant are entirely different. It's not a continuation. It's not a slight adjustment. One covenant ended and another covenant began. So now we have to focus in on the new covenant and decide, okay, what does it mean to me? Okay, so Paul's going to give us an illustration of this, and I really want you to focus in on it. I think it's so incredibly deep. This is what Paul says. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, under the way, until the way of faith was revealed. What's protective custody? Well, there is an enemy threatening to kill you, and we couldn't set you free yet, so we had to put you in confinement under a law, away from the enemy, yet, yet still confined, until you could be set free, right? This is the case for us. We had to be placed under protective custody of the law, to protect us from the enemy until Jesus could set us free. Then he gives another analogy. He says, let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. 
I'm going to guess you've never heard this passage preached on before. Why? Because it kind of ruffles feathers. It's hard to accept Paul, what Paul is saying here, but it's true. The law was a temporary something given to you to keep you safe until you could be set free. This is another analogy. He says the law was a guardian. What's a guardian? Well, you can't be free yet to live on your own. You can't be free yet to make your own decisions. So a guardian will take care of you until you can be set free. This is the analogy is parenting, right? While you're under my roof, you follow my rules. Now, someday you're going to be set free, so to speak. Someday you're going to go out and make your own decisions and and live the way you want to live. But until then, I make the rules. And I'm making the rules if I'm a loving parent, not because I want to make your life miserable. I'm making the rules because I'm trying to protect you. Because there's enemies out there who are are trying to take advantage of you. So I'm going to make some rules to protect you until you can understand, I'm going to, I'm going to, until you can understand why the rules are there, until you are mature enough to understand the rules, I'm going to protect you with the rules. A guardian can protect you in the meantime. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. But it seems to me that so many people try to cling to the law. We call it legalism. And it's everywhere, right? I hear it taught all the time in like sneaky ways. Oh, God didn't heal you? There must be some sin in your life keeping him from being able to heal you. Oh, you're not wealthy? You must not believe hard enough. Or whatever it is, we associate an outcome that we want with an action that would cause that outcome. Yet Christ said, that's law. That, that was the old system. That is not the system we live in under, under anymore. When I hear pastors hounding people about being good enough, about behaving correctly, they prescribe an, an action or a behavior for a set outcome. Now, there's some truth to this. Our actions have consequences. This is true. When we act a certain way, we get a certain outcome. But spiritually, when it comes to our relationship with God, this is not the case. When we try to apply our connection with God to the same thing that has, when we talk about natural consequences in our world, we're comparing two incompatible ideas. This is what I see when I hear this prescription. For the past 3,294 seconds, I have felt bad. I was walking through the hall and I bumped my wrist and it really hurt. Have you been dealing with an owie? I have an owie. Have you had a hard time smiling? I haven't been able to smile. Has your family noticed? Even my family have noticed. Have you not been right? I've been not right. Have you been at a loss and you didn't know what to do? I was at a loss. I didn't know what to do. But then my friend recommended pill. I took pill and then I was great. My owie went all away. We do not recommend taking pill if you do not have an owie. 
Side effects may include nausea, heartburn, indigestion, upset stomach, diarrhea. Pill. So I ask, how exactly does the pill work? Like, what's in it? How does it fix my owie? Remind me, how exactly does being good save me from hell? Connect those dots for me. What truth do you point to that says to me, being good is the solution you need to your problem? Ah, just shut up and take the pill. Just shut up and be good. It's a way that we can get our rules followed. The reality, though, is there is a pill. There is a solution, a cure to the problem. But it's prescribed by Christ. And it's not being good. Paul says, for you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. The baptism he's talking about here is not water baptism. He's talking about, remember when John was baptizing people in water, he says, I baptize in water, but one who is coming later will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He's talking about salvation. He's saying that Jesus' baptism is different. So this is the baptism that Paul is talking about. And then Paul gets a little bit offensive, as if he hasn't already been. Remember, Paul's talking to the Galatians. Galatia is a a place of mixed heritage. There's Jews, but then there's also Gentiles, both together living in one place. And he says to this mixed group, he says, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You know, the Jews had set themselves up as the elites. They were God's chosen people. They were incredibly proud of the fact that they were God's chosen people, and they were confident that they were better than everyone else. And in a way, for a while, they were. That's why we use the word Gentiles the way we use it today. Many of the Israelites were what we would call prejudiced nationalists. Now, when we use the word Gentiles, we're referring to anybody who isn't a Jew. The word Gentile actually originally comes from the Hebrew word goy, which means the nations. So originally, when they said Gentile, they actually just meant the nations, not including us. It would be like saying them. That's what this word meant. But over time, it started to get a negative connotation because whenever they used the word the nations, they were kind of using it in a derogatory way. Outsiders. Oh, he's a, he's a Gentile. He's an outsider. And so the name started to have new connotation. It started to take on new meaning. But, but Paul says, and now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. Now that you belong, you, this is a plural you speaking to Jews and Gentiles. And now that you belong to Christ, you are all the true children of Abraham. And you're just like, uh-uh. No, you can't call these Gentiles children of Abraham. That, that requires some bloodline stuff, Paul. What if Pastor Paul got up here one Sunday and he was like, I declare you are all now children of Roy and Laura Wilson. That's my parents. I'd be like, no, excuse me. 
I had to lose a lot of Rook games in order to earn that title. <laughs> Cannot take that from me. That required a lot of punishment in order to get that title of child of Roy and Laura Wilson. I'm like, no, I want to be unique. I want to be special. But Paul says, you are all God's heirs. When my youngest son, Titus, was born, my oldest son, Lincoln, got jealous. If you have two children, I'm guessing you've experienced something similar. Before Titus was born, I used to always say to Lincoln, Lincoln, you are my boy. It's kind of my go-to phrase. You are my boy. And then Titus was born. And I would say to Titus, Titus, you are my boy. And I noticed that each time I would say, tell Titus, you're my boy, Lincoln would act up in some way to get attention, usually in a negative way, right? And the jealousy was creeping in. Still to this day, we struggle with it. Until one day, finally, I said to Titus, Titus, you are my boy. And Lincoln lost it. What about me? And my heart broke in that moment. What do you say? I said to Lincoln, Titus being my boy doesn't mean you're not my boy. When I, when I started loving Titus, that doesn't mean I stopped loving you. I don't love you any less. But what is Lincoln feeling? It's somewhat of a sinful emotion. This desire to be unique, to be special, to be the only one. I don't want others to get what I got. I don't want others to get the status that I have. And his pride in him is making him wanting, want to be an individual in this way. So you can understand that when Paul starts calling the Gentiles children of Abraham, they get a little bit, or when Paul starts, yeah, I said it right, the Jews start to get a little bit frustrated. Wait a minute. No, this isn't fair. You are all heirs of Abraham. You are his heirs. And God's promise to Abraham now we're talking about more than just heirs. Now we're talking about a blessing. God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. So what does this mean for us? It means that if you are blessed, it was a gift. My, my children did not do anything to earn sonship in my home. They did nothing to earn that title. It was a gift from God. God, sovereign, in his, our sovereign God placed these children in my home. And every day I recognize the miracle that it is that I, they are mine. And so my children have nothing to, be, to brag about when they say, I am a child of Mike Wilson. I am a child of Darcy Wilson. Nothing to brag about. You did nothing to earn that. And it also means that we can't judge, right? If I didn't do anything to earn it, then I can't judge others who don't have it. Jesus died for everyone. Jesus offered this gift to everyone. Paul told the Philippians, I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. I don't count on that. Rather, I became righteous through faith in Christ. This is a hard one for us humans to understand, right? 
Because if I became righteous by being good, now all of a sudden I am on a higher level than others. If I am better than you, that means I'm more righteous than you. That means I'm better than you. And we start to measure, compare, judge. So what do we do? We walk around with a measuring stick saying, well, you're less than. And we compare everybody to our list of rules and we say, well, you, you fail here and you fail here and you don't accomplish this and you don't, you don't get that. We start judging. We see everybody we see through this comparison lens, me versus you, my good works compared to your good works. And this is a little difficult to do. So what we actually end up doing is creating our own list. We add our own laws to the list, right? If you want to be a member of our church, you got to do this, this, and this. And if you don't do those things, then you can't be a member of our church. You're like, wait, can you show me that in Scripture? No, it's not in Scripture. It's just some things that we think are a good idea. Let's just call them oral laws. Let's just call them oral traditions. you got to do these things that we think you should do because your life will be better if you do those things. This is our list. We compare everybody to our list and we determine who's in and who's out, who's a member and who's not a member, who's a part of the club, who's not a part of the club. We measure everybody. We become the judge because now we think our good works have given us authority. But the problem is Christ never told us to create a list, conveniently leaving off the list that we're the things that we don't struggle with. I know scripture says to that thing talks about things like gluttony and pride and anger and all those. Those are not as important. Let's talk more about the things that I don't struggle with, right? Comparing everybody to my list. Scripture never tells us to be the judge, to create a list. Scripture never tells us to pick up your measuring stick and determine who's good and who's not. Scripture, Jesus tells us, whoop, I've been working out. Scripture tells us to pick up our cross. Pick up your cross and follow me. What does that mean? It means that our standard, our judgment, we no longer see people through the lens of goodness and badness and us compared to them. And are you in or are you out? Are you good enough? Are you too bad? Scripture tells us to pick up our cross. Now, everybody we see, we see through the lens of grace and forgiveness. God's love for you is as great as his love for me. And so everybody we see, if we see that God loves you unconditionally, how can I do any less? And now, rather than looking in, it, it also affects the way I see myself. Now I'm not looking at this and, and seeing how great I am. Now this is a mirror that reflects back on me. And when I see myself, I see somebody who's forgiven. And it changes the way we see the world. It gives us a new lens. And what changes our behavior is not trying to measure up to some list. What changes our behavior is, is Paul calls it renewing of your mind, changing the way you think. It changes the lens through which you see the world. The worldview of your life changes. And now my actions, my behavior change because now I see things differently. I've been changed. Now I see the, the world through the grace that God gives the world. And my love for him or my love for others, which is really the core action that we're looking for in every good action we ask for, right? The, the list of do's and don'ts that Christ give us are really just ways that we can love others. 
And if I see that God loves others, then my actions begin to align with that love for others because I'm seeing everybody in the world through the lens of the cross. Paul says, for God's way of making us right with himself depends on not actions, not behavior, not removing sin from your life, depends on faith. This isn't how we work naturally. If you cheat on your wife and you try to save your marriage, you come to your wife and you say, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And she says, no, that's not enough. You're going to have to prove it, right? Before we can be together again, I need to see that you are faithful to me. And that's logical. That's probably a good idea, right? I need to see some actions behind your words. That makes sense. That seems fair. But God is not fair. Our relationship with him is not determined by our faithfulness. Because instead of looking for us to be faithful, God was faithful for us. God was faithful on our behalf. Now what he's looking for us in us first is not faithfulness, it's faith. He is looking for us to have faith in his faithfulness. God's not like us. He wants us to be faithful, yes. But the only way that we can be faithful is to put our faith in him. The only way that we can be effective in our mission is to be faithful. Faith without works is dead. Without faithfulness, we're impotent. We're unable to be a part of the mission. But because we can't stay faithful, because we will fail, he was faithful for us. That is literally the good news. God was faithful for us. Our faith in God is our faith in God's faithfulness is enough for our salvation. Because the reality is we cheated on God. We were unfaithful. And he says, you can't fix the relationship by doing better. You can't fix the relationship by trying to sin less. The only way that you can be made right with God is with faith. Legalism says, be holy and then God will be faithful to you. That's not the gospel. We believe that faith is the root and faithfulness is the fruit. Faith is the root. Faithfulness is the fruit. Faith in God produces faithfulness to God. It changes us and makes us productive. But if there is no faith, there is no root. And what happens to a tree with no roots? It dies. And a dead tree can produce no fruit. So what does faith look like? There was a famous tightrope walker named Charles Blondine who famously would walk across the Niagara Falls on a tightrope. And he would do this many times and big crowds would come out to watch him do this trick. And, and he would perform the trick so many times that eventually started making it more difficult. So over time, he did it blindfolded. 
He did it. He, one time he stopped and he made an omelet and ate the omelet out on the rope. He'd sit down, balance on chairs, do all kinds of crazy stunts out on this rope. Well, one time he walked across the rope, across the Niagara Falls with a wheelbarrow. And he got to the other side and there's a big crowd there watching and they're all cheering. And then he says, how many of you believe that I could put a man in this wheelbarrow and walk across the rope? And he said, yeah, we believe you can do it. He said, who will get in? I said, I believe, but. Until one man stepped forward. And he got in the wheelbarrow. And they both fell to their deaths. Just kidding. No, they survived. They, <laughs> the man in the wheelbarrow made it across to the other side. But what did the man in the wheelbarrow do to successfully get across the rope? What was his role? Just faith. In fact, if he tries to help, that's probably when they fall to their deaths. If he tries to get involved in the process and, and tries to do something, I bet Charles is like, don't move a muscle. Don't do anything. If you try, you'll just screw it up. I think this is what God is telling us. This is why his message to us is repeatedly, you are not saved with your, with your actions. You cannot be saved by your works because if you try, you're just going to screw it up. You're just going to end up judging and separating and dividing. It's like, just put your faith in me. Just let me do it. Just let me sanctify you. Just let me make you the person that I created you. Just trust me. Now, Charles Blondine could have screwed up, right? He's a man. He could have. This could have been his first failure across the Niagara Falls. You serve a God who will never fail you, who will never leave you or forsake you, who lived the perfect life that none of us could ever live on this earth. And he made a way. He died on the cross to make it possible for your faithfulness to fail. But if you put your faith in him, in the perfect heavenly father, all powerful, mighty God, his faithfulness can save you. But the reality is that faith is more than mental acceptance. Faith is belief that changes everything about the way that we see the world. It's a, it's a changing of our minds. That's what repentance is. It's just like, a, I don't see the world the way I used to. Eventually, it literally changes our lives. Not usually quickly, but it literally changes us. Because if, if our faith is just a mental acceptance, okay, I looked at this option, and I looked at this option, and I looked at this option, and Jesus was closest, so I'll just go with him. Then as soon as something comes up that we don't understand, or somebody says something that catches us off guard, or somebody makes a good argument, as soon as something changes in our circumstances, then if faith is only mental acceptance, then we jump ship. 
as soon as there's pain in my life, what God is asking us to do is he's saying, get in the wheelbarrow. Like, surrender trying. Surrender trying to be good enough. Surrender your plans and your dreams and your goals. And let me do it. Let me change you. Let me mold you. Let me form you into the person that I created you to be. That's faith. It's surrender. It's giving up my plans, giving up my dreams, giving up my efforts, and letting him do it in me. So have you surrendered yourself to God like that? Have you said to him, God, I trust you so much that I'm going to quit trying to do it on my own. I'm going to quit trying to be good enough and just point people to you. I'm going to pick up my cross and rather than showing everybody how well I measure up and how good I am and how perfect I can be and what great pictures I can post on Instagram, instead I'm going to quit list, holding up a measuring stick and hold up a cross and point people to you. And not take credit, but to give credit. If you're ready to make a decision like that today, there's a card on the chair in front of you. Would you let us know that you're ready to, to follow Christ? You're ready to give yourself to him? You can check that box that just says, I'm deciding to follow Christ today. God, I thank you that you have done what we cannot. I thank you that you're powerful enough to do something about our circumstances and you sacrificed enough to make it happen. Your faithfulness can do what we cannot. So God, I pray that in the hard times, in the doubt, in the pain, that you would give us courage to leave our faith in you, to believe in you by surrendering everything to you. God, you are good and we are not. So we point people to you. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.